Section 14 of G. K. Chesterton in America, A Catholic Review of the Week. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. G. K. Chesterton in America, A Catholic Review of the Week by G. K. Chesterton. Section 14. The Democracy of Shakespeare. I have always owed a debt of gratitude to Mr. Shaw for throwing doubts on the anti-democracy attributed to Shakespeare. The truth is that not only Shakespeare, but most of the other great poets, can only be convicted of anti-popular sentiment by the detestable habit of quoting tags. For instance, Carlyle solemnly quotes Horace about the duty of hating the profane vulgar. But Carlyle does not mention that, Immediately after, Horace proclaims silence for all the world, like Whiffin the Beetle at the Eatonswill election, and announces in the best manner of modern advertisement that he has an entirely new repertoire of songs, especially suited to young people of both sexes. The atmosphere of the ode certainly is not that of the misanthropic artist. Or again, many imagine a faint oligarchic flavor about Gray's expression, far from the madding crowd's ignoble strife, especially as it has been used as a title by the intensely anti-popular genius of the author of Tess of the Duberville and Jude the Obscure. A crowd more unstakably maddening than Mr. Hardy's suicidal rustics, it would be hard to find in any slum. But the feeling in Gray's poem the tone as distinct from the tag is distinctly popular. He is praising the social strength and value of hobnailed louts, and his vision involves a noble recognition of their roughness, though perhaps the noiseless tenor of their way is not the best description of their boots. In the same way, because somebody persuaded Shakespeare to write a rather dull play about Corianalus, Critics have talked about poor Will of Stratford, who would have often written a play about the man in the moon for the sake of a job, as if he were a rigid Roman patrician resurrected from the dead. But the general spirit of Shakespeare runs just the other way. It is founded on the popular medieval feeling that Jack is as good as his master, and often better. Whenever Shakespeare's narrative brings prince and clown together, the clown scores off the prince as systematically as Sam Weller scores off Pickwick or Sawyer or Stiggins. Hamlet and Laertes, leaping into the grave and out again, seem, and I think are meant to seem, mere theatrical sentimentalists, compared with the workman who, being as cheerful in the grave as in any other workshop, has some right to ask the grave where is its victory. Moreover, the gravedigger does utter the genuine democratic sentiment, and the only important political sentiment in the play. Mr. Shaw has, by the way, truly pointed out that the man who makes the ultra-royalist speech about the divinity hedging a king is a ruffian and is killed after all. But I think the case is even stronger than he says. It must surely have been a stroke of savage humor 
to put the dogma that kings cannot be murdered into the mouth of the ambitious and successful gentlemen who had the best possible private reasons for knowing that they could. The ghastly irony of the words in the mouth, not only of a usurper but of a regicide, cannot be taken as a serious salute to monarchy. But the real philosophy of democracy, right or wrong, is excellently stated by the gravedigger when he objects to great folk having continence to drown or hang themselves more than their even Christian. One could write a whole history of Europe round that phrase, even Christian. Note that broad religious views are brought in to excuse narrow social sympathies, exactly as they are today by Dean Inge and the model employees. Lertes talks a lot of new theology about churlish priests, but the man with the spade knows the truth. If this had not been a gentlewoman, this point is important, for nothing is commoner nowadays than to make sentiment the excuse when snobbishness is the motive. And when I watched the old problem plays, and when the faithful old butler bringing in the liquors heard the young genius shoot himself in the wings, or when the femme incomprise wandered down by the exquisite azaleas and disappeared into the Menterlinkian lake, something historic in me hardened my heart. And I only murmured, and the more pity that great folk should have continence in this world to drown or hang themselves more than their even Christian. The man who said that was no anti-democrat. Another difficulty is that geniuses who write unequally and have a ringing talent for melodrama, like Shakespeare, often do not get the credit for their subtlety when they are really subtle. They are credited with performing some stale mechanical trick when the trick is really too quick or new for the audience to follow it. A strong example is the other great instance of the crowd in Shakespeare, the occasion of Mark Antony's oration. The ordinary version in our Victorian youth was that Brutus made a good speech against Caesar, and the mob cheered him very much. Then Antony made a good speech for Caesar, and the crowd cheered him even more. And this was another example of Shakespeare's contempt for the inconstant populace. Now this is very bad and careless criticism. It is bad and careless, as it would be to treat Robinson Crusoe as a tale of perils, and complain that the hero had so long to fetch stores from the wreck. This would miss the point, that it is not Crusoe's insecurity, but his security, that puts a silence as of a punishment about his loneliness. It is bad and careless, as it is to say, that Stevenson's tale of Jekyll and Hyde shows that a man has two natures, one good and the other evil, and that they can exist separately. This misses the point, that the interest of Jekyll is not in the success, but in the failure of his experiment. He sincerely tries to saw himself in half, but the spinal cord of conscience still connects the two parts. In other words, it is a vulgar simplification, like most modern religions. It is putting down everything in black and white because you are colorblind. 
Antony's speech is not only sincere but passionate. I cannot prove it. Nor can you prove that Juliet was in love. That ornate blank verse is more likely to be used by a demagogue in a forum than by a girl in the balcony. There is no answer, except that there is a certain kind of blank verse that is not blank. It fills the heart of the reader, and unless we are all mad, it must have filled the heart of the writer. Mark Antony roused the democracy because he was a democrat. He was addressing the members of a democracy suddenly cowed by the coup d'etat of the old aristocrats. He was expressing himself under restrictions, but so were they. He ran great risks in saying anything, but so did they. He did not want to die very much, nor do the London poor. He had mostly to take refuge in irony, so do the poor. But the man who can take such irony for artificial party speaking ought to have boiling lava in his teacup at afternoon tea. His appeal throughout is to the plainest ideas of the people. Death, friendship, tears, blood, money. Caesar cried at sight of suffering. Cato did not cry. Caesar had left the poor heart cash. Cassius probably would not have done so. Caesar's throat was cut, and after all, Brutus's wasn't. Antony is the professional politician, being as bold as he dares, but his appeal is to the ordinary man. And now turn back to what I think is almost the greatest thing in Shakespeare. Shakespeare's type of tragedy was the first tragedy of free will, the first Christian tragedy. Quote, unquote, we will call a halt to this business. If these words are properly spoken, the audience really feels that Duncan may have his porridge next morning in peace. It is something more living, original, and spiritual than the flattening steamroller of fate. It is the villain tempted by virtue. Shakespeare has given us one tremendous picture very much needed for these times. He has shown us the politician when he is suddenly tempted to be a man. When Antony actually finds the body of Caesar, he asks for death with startling and inspired impatience, knowing he will afterwards be a corpse or a statesman. There is no hour so fit as Caesar's death hour, nor no instrument of half that worth as these your swords made richer with the most noble blood of all this world. Then he utters the rending phrase of revelation. Live a thousand years, I shall not find myself so apt to die. Most successful statesmen have passed through that heroic instant, and there are none who do not really regret that they have survived it. G.K. Chesterton End of section 14 The Democracy of Shakespeare Read by Michael Shane Craig Lambert, L.C.